today on Ag News Daily. We understand our ag crowd, but there's a whole bunch of people that need this book more than our ag crowd. So that's why I said, wait a minute, I'm going to put this out there for the people that ask us questions. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Friday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Mike Pearson. Mike, where are you off to today? I am currently sitting in the departures area of O'Hare International Airport, waiting on a flight to bring me back to Des Moines, Delaney. All right, Mike. Very exciting. It's uh, snowy again in Des Moines today. We had warmer temperatures yesterday, as I mentioned on the podcast, but I think we are uh, getting ready to take a turn back to cold. Yes, it is winter. That is something we can expect here probably for the next two months, but... That doesn't mean that we have to give up all hope as of yet. We've got some good news here in the world of agriculture, and that is the DTN Progressive Farmer Confidence Index rose for the first time in quite a while. It rose to 164.1 in December, and that is higher than the index in March and the December 2018 level of 109.2. So this, I thought, was interesting given the challenges that a lot of folks had getting through 2019, looking at a lot of the marketing situations that growers have been faced with. In spite of all of that, they are managing to be more positive as they look ahead to 2020, Delaney. Well, I think part of that sentiment or increase in positive sentiment, I should say, has really largely been tied to our trade news. We are going to see President Trump officially sign the USMCA into agreement on Wednesday during a ceremony at the White House. And of course, we are still waiting to see Canada ratify that agreement, but it's expected to be a pretty smooth process on their end. Okay, so we don't have a timeline yet for Canada. They're just, we're just hoping they're going to get through it here shortly. Yes, yep, we don't really have a real timeline as of yet. Okay, well, I've got other trade news while we're talking the trade conversation, and that is that the Wall Street Journal reported earlier today that officials in India and the U.S. are working on a limited bilateral trade agreement. Um, it is expected that this might be unveiled during a visit by President Trump here in the next few weeks. Uh, basically, we don't know what all is going to be in the agreement. We know that agriculture is heavily protected in India, so if it is a limited agreement, ag is probably going to be left out of it, but they are going to be tackling some other trade and economic issues, and this might work to restore India's status to a preferential trade partner of the U.S., which would have some benefits for agriculture in the way it would reduce uh, tariff barriers for ag products. Yes, and it sounds like the U.S. is not the only ones that are lining up to create a free trade agreement with India. It appears that President Bolsonaro, Brazilian's president, arrives today into the country of India to discuss, amongst other things, agricultural trade as part of their primary discussions and also looking at enacting a free trade agreement between Brazil and India. So it seems we may have some competition there as well. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's interesting. You know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, the world looked to China as the next growing agricultural powerhouse or at least agricultural demand driver. They had a massive population. Their wealth was beginning to grow. All of these factors came together, which said China's going to need more food. Now, I think we're seeing the same thing take place with India. Their growth has been uh, fairly substantial for the past several years. Their new uh, prime minister has been working to modernize a lot of sectors of that economy. And I think now global ag players, the U.S. and Brazil most notably, are looking out at that country mm -hmm. and saying, hey, we need to get our foot in the door here. We need to make sure that when they do go looking for food, 
they turn to us first. So I think this is a good sign. Yeah, and, and uh, I focus on India a lot when I speak to different agricultural groups just because it's so different. I mean, it's a 1.3 billion population. You look at the breakout of religious and ethnic groups within India, and I always use this in my speech, but basically there's about 20% of the population, let's say, that uh, eats beef because obviously there's a big population there that's Hindu and this the cow is sacred for those people but about 15 to 20 percent of their population we suspect eats beef and that's almost equal to the entire U.S. population. Yeah in fact it is larger so it, it's fascinating and India is one of the world's largest beef exporters you know and has been for some time of course the product they are exporting isn't the traditional beef that we look at it's rather water buffalo which comprises the majority of the Indian dairy industry and it's what they're uh, exporting over the Himalayas into China. It is certainly interesting, that's for sure. Well, with that little tag into China, I've got some news here, probably not super relevant today to American agricultural producers, but I think it's perhaps a sign of what might be to come with the spread of African swine fever in China. Um, it was announced earlier today that uh, big ag player Louis Dreyfus, one of the ABCDs of agriculture, announced earlier today that they are going to develop an aquaculture and plant-based energy production facility as part of a joint venture in China. Uh, basically, they're effectively going to be looking at some type of ethanol production. We don't have much detail, whether it will be corn, whether it will be sugarcane, whether it will be starch-based ethanol, we don't know yet, but it's some kind of bioenergy production in conjunction with aquaculture. Now, there haven't been a lot of major investments in the aquaculture space in China. Uh, most of China's fish is uh, either farmed conventionally or obviously fished from the ocean and, and rivers. But there is quite a taste for fish over there. And if aquaculture can take off as a protein substitute, as if their hogger does take longer than expected to rebuild, this could be a sign that maybe we're going to have to ship more bean meal over to China to feed their growing fisheries, Delaney. We don't have a timeline for no, this project. Right. We don't yet know exactly how much they're going to spend. Uh, well, I guess I guess we do. Total, they're going to spend about a billion dollars in this investment. We don't know how much Louis Dreyfus is going to spend versus their their Chinese partner. Well, this could certainly help them get to that eighty billion target mark that they've uh, put in place. Well, yeah. If they do need to, uh, if they can get aquaculture ramped up shortly and you know, really start feeding a whole lot of fishies. Yeah, that could be definitely part of the puzzle. It could indeed. Another part of our trade puzzle for the U.S. could be the U.K. We saw Queen Elizabeth II on Thursday give her formal approval to the legislation pulling Great Britain out of the European Union, and we are going to see that officially happen, that Brexit or exit, if you will, happen on January 31st. And of course, President Trump is very excited about this, as well as other top chief agricultural negotiators saying that this is going to be a very important step for Britain and for the U.S. to eventually put together a free trade deal between those two countries. Yeah. And so, Delaney, I'm kind of confused. And if you're reading an article about this, you could perhaps shed some light on it. My understanding is that on the 31st, so the U.K. has already said we're done on the 31st. On that date, the EU will vote. Do they do a soft Brexit and sort of pull out gently with, with more strings between the two countries, or do they do a hard Brexit? Is that your understanding that on the 31st the EU is voting to decide what to do? My understanding is that it's kind of already a done deal. 
okay, so on the 31st, it's just boom, pull the plug, they're done. That's how I understand it, but uh, we'll do a little more digging into that to make sure that's, I'm going to fact check that. Okay, perfect. Good, good to have some, some facts. Um, Delaney, I am all out of news. Should we get to the markets or do you have any more stories we need to cover? Well, I was just going to share some quick estimates from Informa that got released this week looking at planting acres. Yes, already in spring of this year. We saw Informa estimate that the U.S. 2020 corn crop will be at about 93.4 million acres up about 4 million acres from this past year in 2020, or excuse me, in 2019, the soybean crop is expected to increase pretty substantially as well to about 86.5 million acres, up from 76 million acres in 2019. Wheat acres are expected to drop about 4 million acres, and cotton is uh, supposed to remain pretty much the same. So it's going to be interesting. We're going to watch that, continue to see if indeed we are going to get that especially in the soybean market, a substantial increase in acres. Yeah, that's surprising. That's, that's higher than I've heard a lot of other folks estimate. I've heard roughly eight, 94 million, excuse me, corn acres, 84 million bean acres. So to go in with 86, that's a, that's a big number. That is indeed. Well, it certainly looked like the markets were seeing red today, Delaney, almost all across the board. Dairy was one of our lone exceptions. Should we jump in and see what happened today? Let's do it. In the corn market, March corn was down four and three quarter cents at three eighty nine. Even the May contract down four and a quarter to close the day at three ninety four and a quarter. Beans another down day. The March contract dropped eight cents, fell below that level of support. We've been keeping an eye on at nine oh two. Finished the day at nine oh one and a half. May contract down seven and three quarters, finishing at nine fifteen and a half. And in wheat, the March contract dropped seven and three quarters to finish at five seventy two and three quarters. The May down seven and a half. Closing the week at 571 and a half. Looking over at livestock mixed trade, I suppose, in live cattle, the February contract was up 17 and a half cents at 124.85. April up 12 and a half to finish at 124.30. In feeder cattle, the March contract dropped 85 cents, closing at 139.67.50. April down 97.50 to finish at 142.50. Lean hogs, big day of the downside. The February dropped a dollar 27 and a half, but closing up at one six. Excuse me, at 67.22 half. April down a dollar ninety, closing at one. Excuse me, 73.45. I don't know why I keep on making those hundred dollar hogs. They are not there yet. Over in dairy, as I mentioned, kind of the one uh, upside today. The January contract was up four cents at 17.04, with the February unchanged on the day at 17.98. For today's interview, we're going to talk with ag speaker, author, and general man about town, Mr. Damian Mason, about his newest book. Food fear. Well, we are joined today by fellow podcaster, agricultural speaker, and author now, Damien Mason. Damien, thanks for joining us today. How's it going? Delaney, Mike, thank you for having me on the show. It's, uh, things are good. You know, I'm happy to be here, so happy to be alive. It's a new year, 2020. All's good. All is good. And Damien, as I mentioned there, you do a lot of public speaking. You're getting around talking to a lot of different agricultural groups. Tell us what you're hearing so far. Uh, I know we're only about a month into 2020, but what have you been hearing with your ear to the ground? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's always the same old thing. Uh, ag people love to fester over what was, what will be, what will be, what will be. Uh, just yesterday, I followed a person that did the Washington update. And any of your listeners that have gone to enough ag meetings, I think there's a staple, and Mike can uh, probably attest to this. You need somebody to talk about the markets, 
somebody to talk about Washington, D.C., and somebody to talk about the weather. Pretty much every ag meeting since I was a little boy that I went to them, you probably got one or all three of those things. And what's funny is uh, the the Washington thing, it's kind of like they read two articles and then said, well, probably what's going to happen is and it's just more, uh, you know, it could be any of the talking heads on uh, on the news, uh, <laughs> on the markets. Uh, you know, a guy like Mike Pearson probably has a pretty good handle on what's going on in terms of the marketplace right now, uh, as far as pretending that we're going to know what's going to happen based on another trade deal nine months from now. That's kind of speculatory. And then as far as the weather, I always tell my audiences, hey, I can do the weather. Uh, don't even bother hiring that weather speaker. Here's the deal. We're going to have uh, significant warming coming in uh, late spring and the jet stream is going to shift and there's going to be a lot of moisture and it's going to hold up planting progress in some part of the United States. Uh, and there's going to be a dry spell somewhere around July and August. It's going to put a scare in the markets. But you know what? We're going to be able to get through this season. It's going to harvest. Oh, there's going to be an early snow probably in the upper Midwest. <laughs> that's pretty much the same weather forecast that's been going on since the Farmer's Almanac first printed. And I can do it in my sleep. So what am I hearing besides those things? Um, uh, some fear. Uh, has subsided over tri- trade deals, but I think there's a bit too much optimism over what that's going to do. Uh, as I tell everybody, you know, first off, a signed piece of paper, that's neat. Secondly, China treats on every deal they've ever had. Thirdly, um, there's too many people that believe that because we signed a trade deal with China, that, that they're going to just start buying a bunch of stuff. Well, they've been buying stuff off the global market, and we do live in a world marketplace they were not fasting for the last 18 months. So whether they buy soybeans from us or from Brazil, it's still a world market. And that's why soybeans are still at $9.80. But I do digress. And also, I should also uh, point out, Mike Pearson's the markets guy here, not me. Well, but, you know, I think you, you've hit the nail completely on the head. And that's what we've seen happen in the, in the soybean market. We've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks here on the podcast, Damien. But when you get out there, when you talk to growers, and you do a lot of work not just in agriculture but in industries all across the country, you're meeting with both growers and consumers. And when you're out there working with consumers in particular, what are you, what are you hearing? What inspired you to write your book, Food Fear? My book, Food Fear, was written originally. I thought it was going to be for our agricultural people. Then it dawned on me that you and I already have those people pretty well figured out. You, me, Delaney, we we understand our ag crowd, but there's a whole bunch of people that need this book more than our ag crowd. So that's when I said, "Wait a minute, I'm going to put this out there for the people that ask us questions." Every one of us three has been at some social event, some place where we were the only ag person. We were the token ag person there, and they said, "Hey, what's this thing about?" You know, name the fill in the blank. This thing about China. This thing about the the farm subsidies. What's this thing about um, hormones in the milk? And so that's why I wrote the book Food Fear because I decided that you and I already uh, we all know the ag thing. It's time for us to share this and straight no holds barred talk with our consumers. So that's what Food Fear looks and sounds like to the person that picks it up. Uh, we talk about fads, fear, and finickiness in the first section because those are the things that define food. We in ag think it's all about production. We've been focused on production for hundreds of years. Our consumers don't care about productivity. They don't care about productive capacity. They care about themselves, and they're influenced by fads, fear, and finickiness. And because they have such opulence of food, they can be more finicky. So, Damien... I am reading the book right now. I'm just just gotten through that section, the fad, fear, and finickiness. But uh, tell me about some of the research or the, I guess, storytelling side of things that went into writing this book. The process, I guess, of of you putting together this book. 
Yeah, I started at the beginning of saying, okay, here's an industry that I know. I've been around my whole life, and I'm got a degree, you know, from Purdue in agricultural economics. So there's there's that. Um, and then I said, okay, now what would I tell people? And my wife has always kind of advisory on this. She's like, you know, all those things that people come up to you and talk about that you can just bust into and say, no, that's not right or this or that. But it couldn't just be, here's my opinion. It's got to be the research. And so when you travel for a living, one thing that I do is I read every single day that I'm traveling and I read things that are not ag specific. A lot of times the wall street journal is my go-to resource, but then also you've got to read business publications. You read things you disagree with, you know, might be mother Jones uh, news or something like that, because you want to see what other folks are hearing, seeing and consuming. So then I said, all right, I know kind of where I'm going to go with this. I'm going to explain the reality of the business of food and I'm going to have to do some research. And so, yeah, every day you say, I'm going to write a chapter, but I know I'm going to have to also read for an hour of researching stuff to make sure I can write that chapter. So there's a little bit more to, you know, to the whole thing than just uh, typing on a, on a typewriter or, or a computer, as it were, um, when you want to come up with the material. So, Damien, you're writing this to consumers. You're addressing the issues that they've got. When you sit from your perspective right now as a person who's got both or one foot in each world, what is the biggest fad right now in, in food, in ag, when you look at it from the consumer's perspective? From the consumer's perspective, Mike, they, they want to – it's this whole thing. They say, I want to know my food is raised. I want to know about my food. I want to know my food. And the reality is they don't. They don't want to come out to Iowa and ride around the tractor for uh, uh, the entire spring and then see how these things are done. They, what they really want is their fear to be mitigated. So there's a lot of fear, and it's because of an agriculturally ignorant consumer base. And it's not because they're bad people. It's because it's not harmful for them to be. It is harmful, but it's not harmed them yet to be this far removed from agriculture. So they hear things from Dr. Oz or from their yoga partner, and then they run with it. Like, I heard that my kids' feet are big because of the hormones in milk. Is that true? And sometimes it doesn't matter whether you and I tell them it's not true or not. They already are vested in that belief. So there's a lot of fear. There's also a lot of, um, shall I say, food has kind of become a new religion. You know, a point that I make in the book, my mom's place at the pew at St. Peter and Paul Catholic Parish in Huntington, Indiana, is not being replaced since she died. Organized religion is slowly dying. It's losing people. And that, that's not me being, uh, you know, facetious. It's just that's the actual data. I mean, I, I point that out. But causes like food have taken on a religious-like movement. There's a reason that these people, uh, you know, show up and march against Monsanto. They don't know what Monsanto is. They don't understand the chemistry of glyphosate. But they have caught, uh, they're caught up in this movement that's somewhat illogical. And uh, that's where I see the, the big thing going. And we can capitalize on this as an industry. You know, Delaney and Mike, where we screw up is that we still think it's about how cheap we can produce uh, a 56-pound uh, bushel of number two yellow corn. And the consumer doesn't care about that. We've moved on way beyond that since the 1950s. Now it's about make food personal to me. Make food about me. And we will be rewarded and can profit from that. Yeah, and I, I uh, think you made some great points in your book and, and also just now, but you also say in your book that consumers don't care about science. And, and I think we see that now when you look at the fads that are coming. But how do you combine that consumers don't care about science with this idea that we still have to make a living and make money, but they want, you know, some story or some personal connection instead? Do you have any solutions for how we meet in the middle, I suppose, with consumers? 
Yeah, well, a great example. You know, Bayer right now has lost the first three lawsuits against glyphosate because they, they sent their lawyers in there, and they're a chemistry company uh, of, you know, of German heritage, and they think it's all going to be all about we're going to win telling them why the science of this matters. And you've got a jury of Birkenstock-wearing San Franciscans that are sitting over there that have been programmed to hate Monsanto and hate chemicals and hate modern agriculture because, again, they've never been without food. So science, you might as well go in there and speak Greek to them or Martian or any other language because science doesn't resonate. If you want to win that lawsuit, you go in there and say, hey, great, go ahead, bankrupt us. Bankrupt us. But you know what? There will end up being starvation. So blood will be on your hands because when you remove glyphosate from our uh, food system, uh, the world's most used herbicide, there will be negative ramifications. And then, like in the book, I compare it to DDT. So we can't use science. we got to use story that sells. I know a great example is on the consumer standpoint, guys. No consumer. They might say it's the science. They might say it's the facts. Consumers are moved by emotion. They move, they move with what makes them feel good. So we're out here telling them all the time about the science of our food. And clearly what they really want is to have a story they can go tell their friends at happy hour that makes them feel good. Um, right today, I just put an article out today. Starbucks encouraging their consumers to not use dairy, to use a dairy replacement. And they're claiming it's because of environmentalism. At the same time, I, uh, I ran a, a research on the amount of uh, tons of garbage, of solid waste that Starbucks produces. So they can say it's a scientific thing. It's an emotion thing. Now you feel good. Starbucks cares so much. They don't want me to use milk in my $6 latte. They want me to use coconut milk. Well, coconut milk is from is derived from coconuts in Indonesia, which has an abysmal environmental record, stuck on a ship, transported over here, concocted, cooked, processed, and made into something that's not really even a natural product. So, again, is that a scientific-based argument, or is that a feel-good? Because now I'm getting Sumatran single-origin coconut milk at Starbucks, who cares about the environment. It's not the science, it's not the economics, it's not the logic, it's the feelings. So how does agriculture appeal to the – how does conventional agriculture appeal to feelings, or do we not? Do we chase the emotions and uh, try to make our dollars that way? Yeah, our opportunity is – first off, we've got to realize there's two marketplaces. The one that we've already got down pat is the commodity production. Yep, we produce the heck out of number two yellow corn and, and your basic you know, uh, pork, beef, whatever, and that's good. But we concentrate so much as an industry on cheap food. We always say cheap food, cheap food, cheap food. And I, I point this out in my book that that was fine 100 years ago, but we've been in a surplus situation. We live in a country with 25% of the global GDP with only 4% of the global population. Uh, there's plenty of money to be here. Let's get away from that. So there's about a half of agriculture that it's time to move away, whether conventional or otherwise, Mike. We have a real opportunity to upsell. And we simply do this. Hey, dear consumer, we don't want to be in a combative situation. Just stop, just stop regulating us to death and tell us what you want and we'll provide it. And I believe that we have a real opportunity in agriculture if we just say, hey, let's make this not combative. Let's just make this all about. But we always double down and say, here's what we're going to do. I just had a dairy farm the other day on Twitter where people love to fight because it's toxic. Tell me that it didn't matter what was going to happen. He wasn't going to change how they do business. And I'm like, and that's exactly the problem. Uh, we probably can win this whole thing very profitably 
by going about the angle of, yep, we're going to do commodity over here for the bottom half and the upper half. We're going to continue to roll out feel-good story stuff. You know, there's a reason that people are going and spending money at Whole Foods. It's not because of price. There ain't one product in the store aisles at Whole Foods that's the cheapest. There certainly is. Uh, Damien, thanks so much for joining us today. But before I let you go, let our listeners know how they can get a hold of your book, Food Fear, if they've got interest in reading it. Yeah, it's available on audiobook, ebook, and hardcover. You can find it at DamienMason.com. It's also on Amazon, but I'd free you buy it at DamienMason.com because that's straight to me where you can also see my other stuff. You can check out my videos, Damien, D-A-M-I-A-N, Mason, like a bricklayer. A lot of good stuff, as you saw, Delaney. And, uh, Mike, I'll get you a copy. Uh, food Fights, Food Forward. Uh, t- talk about where I can win, as Mike just pointed out. Uh, on the on the things that we're so good at, the things that we're so amazing at. You know, we have good trust. We have a consumer base that wants to come out to our operations and do that whole local and feel good. And we can really continue to win by doing some of those things. I talk about the reality of farming, uh, you know, and, and who farms, who does farm in this country and uh, the reality of what the old days looked like and, and why 27% of China Still is involved in farming when only about one percent of America is. So it's a it's a lot of fun. It was a lot of work putting together, but it's a great read about the business. Uh, and then of course I, I kind of map out what I see happening in the future. Uh, for instance, a merging of methods where organic, conventional, value added, all those things come together as one, and ultimately end up being good for our industry, good for our soil, uh, and good for our profitability. Awesome. Well, Damien, we certainly appreciate you joining us today on the podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, again, a big thank you there to Damien. Do check out that book if you've got any interest in reading it. It is, I mean, it is geared more towards the consumer base, but it's definitely a good read for agriculture, too, I I think, at least, to get some perspective on maybe what those folks are thinking. Well, you bet. And I'm looking forward to my copy to uh, show up in the mailbox so I can get up to speed on what all is happening, Delaney. If our listeners want to stay up to speed, they can, of course, check us out on the web. Visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. Listen to our past episodes as well as get connected to the other podcasts on the Global Ag Network. And, of course, interact with us on social media. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, what's the other one? Instagram. Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. I wanted to say LinkedIn, but we're not on LinkedIn. We are on LinkedIn. We just don't do a whole lot with it. Oh, look at that. Find us on LinkedIn, too, folks. Just search for Ag News Daily in any of those places. And we'll show up with that, Delaney. Shall we let the listeners go? Let's let them go.